Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 1895, the inimitable Irish raconteur Oscar Wilde was convicted of gross indecency for having a sexual relationship with a man, and he was sentenced to prison for two years at hard labor. And at the prison where Oscar Wilde ended up, the motto was hard labor, hard food, hard bed. The hard labor consisted of walking on a treadmill hour after hour every day. The prisoners couldn't speak to each other. They had to wear a veil over their face when they were outside their cells so that they wouldn't recognize each other. There were only two books to read, the Bible and the Pilgrim's Progress. The food was so bad that Mr. Wilde almost starved to death in prison, and when he was released, his health was never quite the same. After two years imprisonment, he went instantly to the continent where he lived in exile and destitution until his death three years later. He never returned to Ireland or England. Hundred years later, in 1998, the playwright David Hare wrote a play about the playwright Oscar Wilde. It's called The Judas Kiss, and Kathy and I, a few years ago, saw a production on Broadway starring Liam Neeson, a tall, handsome, hulking Irishman playing Oscar Wilde, a tall, handsome, hulking Irishman. And the play ends with a soliloquy by Oscar Wilde. Society, as we have constituted it, will have no place for me and none to offer. But nature, whose sweet rains fall upon just and unjust alike, will find clefts in the rock in which I might hide and secret valleys in whose silence I might weep undisturbed. She will hang the night with stars so that I might make my way in the darkness without stumbling. With great waters she will cleanse me and with bitter herbs, she will make me whole. And you can tell that Oscar Wilde was a person of muscular faith and vivid spirit. He eventually became a devout Roman Catholic. And it sounds to me as if he was reading his Bible in the prison, right? It's peppered with biblical memes, that little talk, isn't it? He probably knew Psalm 91 by heart. Nature will find me clefts in the rock in which I might hide. You who abide in the shelter of the Most High. And I think Psalm 91 is so beloved, it has been for the ages because it is multivalent, right? There are multiple metaphors by which we can enter the world of the psalmist's intimate relationship with God. God is a cleft in the rock in which we might hide. God is a refuge, a sanctuary church, or a sanctuary city where the undocumented can flee from the immigration authorities. God is a shade in the heat where we flee the punishing sun. God is a fortress like that towering wall in the north for the night's watch in Game of Thrones. 700 feet high, 300 miles wide, carved by magic from solid ice. God is a mother eagle who will shelter her fledglings under her majestic wing. God is the soldier's sword and shield against trouble and sorrow. God as shelter. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come nigh you because you have made God your refuge. God your shelter. 
There is the terror of the night. The world's a difficult place. The world's a difficult, dark place. There is the terror of the night and the arrow that flies by day, the pestilence that stalks in darkness and the destruction that wastes at noonday. And so God places us in the shelter of each other. That's how God shelters us from trouble, by placing us in the shelter. I love the old Irish proverb, it is in the shelter of each other that the people live. God sets us in families. One of my former churches, I had a friend who was successful in her career. She was brilliant and she was beautiful, but she was having a very rough time for a very long time. She, uh, when she was in college, some horrible disease had left her at death's door. She almost died, and then when she recovered, it took her months to get better. She got married and had children, but that didn't work out like she'd hope. Her husband turned out to be cruel and shiftless. The divorce was ugly and the child support invisible, and her children were taking the separation very hard. Co-parenting with this man was exhausting. My friend was not having a good time. And then God found her a cleft in the rock where she could hide. At work, she met this guy who'd lived a similar journey. He'd uh, had a divorce too. His first marriage hadn't worked out the way he'd wanted. He had a teenage son. They found each other. They fell in love. My friend started acting like a besotted teenager in her 40s. She asked me to officiate at her wedding. She wanted me to meet him, which is always a nerve-wracking moment because what if I don't like him? But he was spectacular. And when I saw how this mother and father and their children flourished so wonderfully in the shelter of each other, the ageless poem that sprang unbidden to my mind was Psalm 91, a cleft in the rock where they might hide. And so at their wedding, I told them, make your home a cleft in the rock where you can hide at the end of a day that you have made a mess out of. When you've wrecked the car and quarreled with your boss, every evening tell each other, you're safe, you're loved, nothing can hurt you now because I will love you unconditionally. I will love you invincibly. I will love you till the last of all our days on this earth. Love each other into loveliness, I told them. Grace each other into graciousness, because beautifully loved, then we can beautifully love and beautifully live. And that's what they're doing. And I'm having a blast watching them put these two broken families together into this one humming machine. They are flourishing in the shelter of each other. And you know, I know that the shelter of each other doesn't always look like God's greatest benediction, does it? We disappoint each other. One day when Brian was four years old, his mother did something that made him so mad that he'd had enough. I don't know what she did or didn't do, but this was the last straw. And he said to her, I don't want to live with you anymore. And then he goes stomping off and stomping up the stairs. And mom down on the first floor in the family room can hear him rummaging around in the attic for a suitcase. And then you can hear closet doors opening and dresser drawers being slammed shut. He was up there for about 30 minutes. And then he comes down the stairs dragging this huge suitcase behind him about twice his size. And when he passes through the family room, his, his mom asks, Brian, where are you going to go? And Brian says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm only four years old and I'm not allowed to cross the street. This is your suitcase. (laughs) 
So the shelter of each other isn't a, a never-ending party, right? We disappoint each other. Our expectations diverge. Our dreams clash. We're all flawed. It's not an everlasting party. It can be tough, but when it works, it's so beautiful. Have you been following the story of the Wade Quads? The Wade Quads are four high school seniors who are about to graduate in suburban Cincinnati. They're African-American quadruplets. When they all started uh, applying to colleges last fall, they started applying to all the same colleges. They all applied to Stanford. One got in, the others didn't. They all applied to Harvard. All four got in. They all applied to Yale. All four got in. One applied to Northwestern. He was rejected. The chance of a quadruple birth, by the way, is one in 800,000. So that's pretty rarefied territory. These boys have seen a lot of academic success. And they give their parents credit for this. I guess for both nature and nurture, right? For a spectacular genetic heritage and also for a domestic environment of high expectation. Their father, Darren, and their mother, Kim, met at Jackson State University in Mississippi in math class. And I loved the father's terse, simple philosophy of parenting. There is no Santa Claus, but there is a God. Or to translate, there is a sort of inherent, infrangible justice in the universe. Nothing's free, but everything is possible with hard work. Beautiful family. Oh, by the way, just to put a period on that little story, all four boys are going to Yale, the best financial package. The world can be a dangerous and harrowing place. Hamlet mentions the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, the 10,000 natural shocks that flesh is heir to, the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's arrogance, the pangs of despised love, the law's delays, the insolence of office. The psalmist talks about the snare of the fowler and the deadly pestilence. So we take shelter with each other. I love Sue Miller's novel, While I Was Gone. It's about a veterinarian and her husband, a congregational minister who have three lively adolescent daughters and the whole stable of challenges that brings with it. This book is in my top 20 or maybe my top 40, I think because I felt it was written for me. It was about a Calvinist minister and his health professional wife trying to keep up with spirited children. And one evening, the narrator, protagonist, veterinarian is fixing dinner in the kitchen and her college-age daughter, Sadie, is sitting at the kitchen table doing her homework and whining about her cruel poli-sci professor who won't give her an extension on her paper. And the washing machine is kicking up a ruckus in the laundry room, and the dish dishwasher is sloshing around in the kitchen. She can smell her husband's laundered clothes hanging on hooks inches from her face. The dogs are barking up a storm, and Sadie's voice rises and falls with the standard teen speak of adolescence everywhere. And the mother says, I was alive. I was in all these worlds at once. 
This, this is what we grow old for. Yes, the shelter of each other.